welcome Robert Boyer to the Plan Charlotte Talk of the Towns podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Robert Boyer is an assistant professor in the UNC Charlotte Department of Geography and Earth Sciences, where he teaches urban planning and sustainability classes. But he's going to talk today about a movement throughout the country called co-housing. It's a unique form of housing. He'll talk some more about what it is. And it tends to fly under the radar and to violate all kinds of regulatory norms. Um, so, Professor Boyer, first thing, what in the world is co-housing? That's a really great question, um, and there are lots of definitions, but the way I like to describe co-housing um, is uh, private dwelling units clustered around collectively owned and managed spaces and facilities. Um, so, uh, in a very basic sense, it is houses or apartments that share access to things that typical homes t consume and access in isolation. So, a normal home in America, um, at least a single family home, has a backyard and a front yard and a kitchen that they access to the exclusion of everyone else. And co-housing, what it tends to do is it tends to cluster these things together so that you have a neighborhood that shares access to recreational space and shares access to a large commercial kitchen um, and things like a library and a uh, children's playroom and meeting spaces um, without necessarily excluding that from individual homes. So while a individual home might still have a kitchen, it'll be a lot smaller. And then you can access an enormous commercial kitchen with all the appliances you ever wanted and couldn't afford as a single household in a neighborhood space. So why would people want to do this? Another great question. Um, right now, the, there are lots of people that are considering co-housing. Um, one demographic right now that is uh, very excited about co-housing is retirees. Um, and the leaders of the movement have really invested a lot of energy into offering co-housing as an option to, um, to baby boomers and to empty nesters that want to downsize and don't want to live alone. There have been a couple of nas national surveys um, that examine who's living in co-housing, and it is disproportionately women, uh, disproportionately educated, um, disproportionately uh, a little bit older, and, um, and disproportionately higher income. Well, speaking as someone who is female mm -hmm. and who does take part in a household, it would seem to me that um, part of the attraction might be, for women especially, that you you're not responsible for every meal, and you're not responsible for this whole household upkeep. But I, I wonder how much of the old, the fact that it's a little bit older is that it's kind of tapping into the baby boomers, the 60s and the 70s memories of the old communes, which mm -hmm. maybe they never lived in, but sure. kind of thought it sounded kind of cool. Is there any evidence on that? Um, I would say that they are distant cousins. Um, I, I would say that they're uni united by a common ancestor. Uh, the United States has over 300 years of history of collectivist uh, communities um, dating back to, for example, Owenite communities and uh, even Puritan communities in the very early founding of the United States um, were founded on mutual support. Um, so uh, Puritan settlements in, uh, in the 1600s, they shared access to common spaces um, and there was a lot of loyalty to the integrity of the neighborhood. Um, and ultimately, those communities were torn apart by land speculation, which is 
exactly what we see in the suburbs today is that land speculation and the mass production of housing really makes it difficult to live in communities where social support is easy. So to answer your question quickly, um, they, you know, they are, I would say they're distant cousins, but in a lot of ways, they're very different than uh, the quote unquote hippie communes of the 1960s and 70s. Um, at least my knowledge from my knowledge of hippie communes um, is that co-housing today tends to be much better organized um, and, um, and they tend to last a little bit longer than, than the hippie communes that kind of came and went in, in a couple of decades. So you're saying you would not have to eat granola in order to live in co-housing? You could eat granola, but, it, but uh, there, there are other options. Yeah, there, there are many other options. And uh, an important point, and, and, and something that I think that uh, to help people um, overcome this misconception that co-housing is like communes, most co-housing um, residents that work, right, so not retirees and not young people or people that for whatever reason can't work, but uh, the residents of co-housing that work tend to have jobs in the mainstream um, like anyone else. And, um, and so they tend to be connected to the mainstream economy. Um, uh, a, a closely related movement that I also study is eco-village, the eco-village movement, which is um, a, kind of a more environmentally conscious, specifically and explicitly environmentally conscious co-housing. Those more often are unassociated with the mainstream economy. They tend to produce more of their own uh, materials and uh, have more local businesses. Um, uh, although the, there, it's it's a it's a spectrum. There are some communities that kind of have a, a blended version of that. Well, some of your research points out the um, the value of sustainability and sure. how co-housing might be one of the tools that we yeah. could use to be a more sustainable, less carbon-consuming uh, society. So talk sure. a little bit about how that would make a difference. Sure. Yeah. So there is some evidence um, that co-housing communities consume fewer resources than communities in the same place um, and of the same size, all other things equal. So housing is very complicated, and, and there are lots of different variables that would determine um, for example, an ecological footprint or a carbon footprint of a community. Um, but if, uh, in a very simple sense, um, you can imagine homes with that are that are smaller, right? That has that has a fewer a, a smaller physical footprint require uh, less energy to heat, less energy to cool, um, and fewer materials to build. Um, and so when you have uh, more people living in smaller homes and sharing more stuff, it requires fewer resources to support them. Now, you could have a co-housing community that doesn't care at all about the environment and they cut down a whole bunch of trees to build their community and they drive everywhere and they you know, consume like anyone else. Um, so that's why I emphasize all other things equal. So if you take uh, a standard neighborhood um, and you somehow get them to live in co-housing, um, there is some evidence that this the the type this type of housing makes it easier to live at a lower carbon footprint. It also happens that co-housing communities tend to uh, unite around uh, light green quote, quote unquote light green values. Um, they tend to um, have more vegetarians, um, which requires less energy to create that food. Um, and in a lot of co-housing communities, you'll see um, the community has invested in solar. Um, solar electricity, 
in um, very energy efficient design, south facing windows, high insulation. Um, and one of the features of co-housing, probably my favorite feature of co-housing, is um, a marginalization of automobiles. So there are no driveways in co-housing communities. Rarely. Some do. But most co-housing communities have no driveways and have no internal paved pathways. So there are no sidewalks. So once you park, um, usually the parking is on the very edge of the community. You get out of your car and then you walk from house to house. Um, so, uh, And a lot of communities choose to share cars. right? So, um, so neighbors, because you know your neighbor better, there's a higher chance that you'll be willing to share a car or share trips. You might ask your neighbor um, who you know is going into town to pick up a hammer and nails if you know you could uh, if they could drop off your library books. Well, you're talking about sharing um, brings up a, a host of questions, sure. and and I want to let people know that there is a co-housing initiative in Charlotte, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But how in the world do they set the rules? Seems yeah. like you got all these different people with different yeah. expectations, and there's gonna you know anybody who's ever been on or observed a homeowners association yes. knows that there's all kinds of stuff yes. between people. So how do you how do you yeah. figure out all this? Well, it's important to note that that stuff between people doesn't disappear, right? Um, the the people that are involved in co-housing are like anyone else. They get stressed. Um, they get uh, frustrated with one another. Um, but something that is uh, I, I find remarkable and very very encouraging across the movement is a deliberate effort to learn how to resolve conflicts, how to resolve interpersonal conflicts so that our personal issues don't get in the way of um, making decisions about the community. And so communities, when they're founded and as they continue after, the, after their founding, um, invest in uh, consensus governance uh, skills. Uh, so they sit down and they learn how to make decisions together. Um, they learn how to uh, use nonviolent communication, which is a way of um, really understanding how your emotions are affecting your decisions and your interactions with other people so that you can kind of get over them. Um, and so uh, communities invest very highly in this so that they can work through the conflicts that are inevitable when you're making rules about how to live together. Are there templates for co-housing bylaws out there? or Because it seems to me that like a lot of HOAs have really intricate rules mm -hmm. on who can vote, mm -hmm. who can't vote, how many votes do you get, what happens if somebody moves away, et cetera, et cetera. Can you rent your unit? Yeah. Are, are co-housing bylaws similar to that? Are they more fine-grained? Are they looser? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think a lot of co-housing communities if you were to look at their bylaws, would look very similar to a standard HOA. Um, some of the, the, the substance of those bylaws might be related to things that you don't find in typical HOAs, like the common house, right? Um, who has access to the common house? What are the expectations of sharing meals? But legally, um, uh, the communities that have set themselves up as a homeowners association look very much like a homeowners association on paper. In fact, some of the founders of communities that I've interviewed say that they very deliberately set themselves up to look as normal as possible so that banks and regulators don't get distracted by this new type of housing model. Um, so they, they make themselves look as, as normal as possible. And in some ways on paper they are, um, except that there are agreements about um, about who can access or, or sharing access to 
to collect these spaces. Who gets the leaf blower and do you have to plug it in? Or, um, sure. Yeah. Right. So um, I know you've done some of your research has been looking at the, the problems that they encounter mm -hmm. in different places. Mm -hmm. Can you give just a really brief rundown yeah. of what some of the hurdles are? Sure. I like, to, I like to say that the communities that succeed, that get built, have put a square peg in a round hole, right? Um, there are a lot of reasons that co-housing doesn't fit the, the mainstream model. And um, the first reason we kind of already touched on. Um, in America today, um, for the last 100 years or so, the process of housing production and housing consumption are completely separate. Um, meaning that um, since, uh, well, so before 1920, only about a third of new homes in America were uh, speculative homes, meaning that they were built by a developer and then sold to a resident that that developer maybe never even saw. Um, prior to that, if you wanted to build a home, you usually were involved somehow in building your own home. You bought land, you hired a carpenter, you maybe designed the house. Um, um, but after 1920, we began to shift, the whole country began to shift toward a speculative housing model where you bought a house as if it were a consumer product off a shelf. Um, and so that's what we're accustomed to, is buying a house that we can see and that we can touch and enter before we, we ever buy. Um, and co-housing development completely flips that model. It requires that people, um, rather than having buyers and sellers, you have members, right? Members, and you have to recruit members and ask them to invest in something that they've never seen and sometimes uh, in a model that they've never heard of. So recruiting people to do it is a very long process. And and uh, initiatives sometimes spend years hosting, uh, week after week, hosting socials and potlucks to help explain this idea to, to people in the region that maybe have never heard of it before. And then you'd probably have people who show up at the potlucks, let me guess here, and mm -hmm. everybody else thinks, oh, we hope they don't come back. Absolutely. And then they do come back. Yes. And then somebody has to vote them off the island. That could be dangerous. That, that happens. Um, and uh, I think uh, I've definitely heard about this happening for example, I once heard of a uh, initiative that got started and a couple came in, things were going the right way and it was a very difficult process for them to ask the couple to leave. Um, sometimes it takes a lot for, uh, sometimes that doesn't happen and then the people end up becoming part of the community and things are very hard moving forward. So um, going back to some of the communication skills that I was talking about before, um, one of the major lessons is learning how to express disagreement in a way that is productive and um, helps help helps the group move forward. So that's one of the obstacles. There are others. Um, the financial model for co-housing is very challenging. Um, banks find it a little foreign and um, unproven. Um, and if you're just a group of uh, ideological citizens that have no experience in housing development, it's going to be very hard to get the loans for buying land, for improving the land, for building the structures. Um, and so the communities that succeed are usually partnering with local uh, professionals that have a lot of connections to banks and can vouch for the success of the community. It seems like it might be easier if somebody just created a co-housing community for bankers, you know, with <laughs> bankers as the members who could then open a lot of doors. Oh, I'd love to do that. That's a really good idea. That's it would really be very Charlotte. That's um, a very good idea. Banker co-housing. Yeah. Um, so, so there's problems with, with dealing with how do you get it built in terms of builders. There's problems dealing right. with financing. What about zoning? Sure. Um, zoning is kind of a mixed bag. Some communities 
uh, choose their land based on the zoning. So if you're uh, if you're very savvy and you are looking for the land that you want to build your community on, you might find a place with the right multifamily zoning and then build it there. And then uh, these communities really have no trouble, um, with some exceptions. So usually, usually the thorniest part of zoning is the parking requirements because uh, standard zoning usually requires a certain number of parking units per dwelling units, or sorry, parking spaces per dwelling units. Um, and if you're a community that doesn't really want to have as much parking, you, you have to negotiate that down. Um, uh, some other issues with subdivision regulations, right? So subdivision regulations are rules about the infrastructure that you have to include with a housing development. And that might, for example, uh, where the types of um, sewage infrastructure that you have to include and sidewalks that you have to include. And if a community doesn't want to have sidewalks, um, or if a community thinks that it can thrive off of, or it can succeed with um, sharing some of that sewer infrastructure, those subdivision regulations defy that, that ideology, that mission. So that's another thing that communities often run into. Um, bigger problems include um, a communities that want to settle in regions where there is no multifamily zoning. Um, and that's, that's one scenario that I've learned a little bit about. Um, there's a community in Oregon that found the land. It had, you know, everyone was, uh, they had a lot of members that were ready to buy into the project and now they just needed to change, change the zoning and the city council or rather the plan commission didn't permit it. They didn't, um, they basically rejected the application and then the city council had to reverse it. Um, so that was a challenge, um, getting zoning changed. And it's, a, it's just another step that you have to go through. And especially if you're in a jurisdiction where, um, Neighbors don't understand the idea. You might get a lot of opposition. And the zoning hearing is an opportunity for neighbors that are unfamiliar or scared of the concept to oppose you. Yeah, I think we could probably do a whole different show on neighbors that don't like multifamily or neighbors that don't like whatever. So. But let's, let's I, move on. I imagine so. Um, and talk about the what you know about the co-housing initiative in Charlotte. Sure. Um, there has been a co-housing initiative in Charlotte for... Um, or at least the seeds of an initiative has been around since right around when I moved here, maybe a little before. So that's about three years. Um, and the, the initiative has come and gone and has run into similar struggles that co-housing initiatives all over the United States run into, um, in part because this is a region that has never done co-housing. Uh, we're really lucky because just up the road, um, in, in the research triangle, there are all sorts of communities. There are now six, and I think there are several being built right now. Um, so there's some experience there. But here in Charlotte, it's a pretty new concept. And so the initiative that has tried to get it off the ground has had the same troubles recruiting individuals, keeping individuals, and, and, and raising the, the money to invest in a project. Um, uh, and I'm in touch with some of the members that are part of that group, my understanding now is that they're beginning to engage a developer, um, and so I think that that will that will help them gain some traction. But I'm really excited to see what happens with it, um, and um, and your listeners, if they're interested in it, they can check out um, the uh, their meetup group. They have a meetup group. I think if you um, Google Charlotte co-housing, you can find their meetup group right there. Uh, I know they have a Facebook page, and they have a uh, website as well. Do you know if they've found a, a site yet? Uh, as of now, I don't think they have. 
um, I think they're looking for it. And, and I think one of, one of the challenges, of course, is, uh, as you mentioned before, when you have a, a group of people with different interests, figuring out, well, do we want to have, do we want a, um, a secluded, uh, forested community, you know, uh, on the edge of the, of the region, or do we want something right in the center of the city, or do we want something in between? That's a really difficult decision, and I think that that's something that they are still, still working on. And it would seem that you'd have different points of view about, is your, is, are the separate units, um, do they share walls? Are they detached? I guess that's a decision that they make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, is there a model for that, or can it go anyway? It can go either way. I've seen communities that have completely detached homes, and um, and I've seen communities that are infill projects in very dense urban areas. Um, Portland has a couple of communities that are in um, old old apartment buildings, um, and so uh, and Los Angeles Eco Village um, uh, is follows a nearly follows a co housing model that's in. Um, a, several apartment buildings. Um, and then you can also have something in between. And the um, kind of the classic model is, um, is almost looks like a town housing, a, a town home um, where you have attached dwelling units, um, but they're not multi-story or they're not stacked on top of one another. Well, I have to say when I was mm-hmm. telling a couple of my colleagues that we were going to be interviewing you and told them what co-housing was, mm-hmm. two of them said, oh, wow, mm-hmm. I would love to live in a place like that. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think the market is for this? Uh, you know, I think, I think that because it is, uh, as I said before, there are so many reasons that it's hard to develop, that it's still very much a, a niche market. Um, and if the barriers right now are the investments on the front end that individuals have to go through, um, to make this happen. So if I describe to you the co-housing model, right, imagine living with people that you like where you can access everything without owning anything. Um, it sounds really nice, but then in that description, I would also have to include if you're interested in developing co-housing, you have to invest years of your life with an uncertain outcome. You have to learn how to work together. You have to learn consensus decision-making skills. Um, and, uh, and if you're willing to do that, then at the end, you'll have to make some compromises about the community that you live into. Um, so there's a lot of work on the front end to make this happen. Um, and what I'm seeing, and, and I think a, a very optimistic um, sign that I'm beginning to see right now, is that there are a couple of developers outside of the co-housing movement that have begun creating co-housing without calling it that. Um, uh, they are Some of them are... Um, excited to quote-unquote recreate the college experience for young professionals um, and some of them are, um, are aren't using that language specifically but what they're what they're what they're piggybacking on it, at least what I see is this trend called the sharing economy or collaborative consumption where you can access uh, objects and services without having exclusive ownership of them a really good example that um, we see here right on UNC Charlotte's campus is Zipcar, where I can, um, for a fee, uh, access a car whenever I need it and uh, without owning a car. And so if I'm not using a car every day, it's really nice to be able to access it without having to pay for the insurance and the gas and, and the cost of, of buying the car. Um, well, why not extend that same logic to an entire community? And I think through these changes in the economy that new um, 
telephone or cell phone apps are allowing us to access, uh, we are the, the idea of co-housing is no longer so foreign to people. It would seem that one of the advantages um, of co-housing would be for people with young children. Oh, yeah. That you have a built-in set of um, eyes on your child, so you can turn your back and go go you know take a shower, and know that your child will not eat lie <laughs> while you're while you're not looking. <laughs> sure. Um, and but it also sounds that the process that you described sounds like it would take so long to get to get a co-housing project off the ground. Your mm -hmm. kid would be driving, you know, <laughs> and, and wanting to rebel against this whole idea by the time you got into it. Are sure. there existing co-housing units or co-housing projects where? Mm -hmm. um, people move out and young people could move in without having to go through the arduous setup. Sure. Years. Yeah, I think um, there are um, always, um, in, in some ways it's like uh, any other housing development where there are vacancies that need to be filled. Um, in some communities there are very long waiting lists and you have to really be on the ball to, to ultimately access a housing unit, which is good news. It means that it's popular and that these are selling. Um, in fact, uh, anecdotally, I've heard that people that invest in co-housing and, and buy a unit are usually able to sell their units um, at, at a profit. Um, and I and I would agree that it's a great, it's a it is wonderful to have children in co-housing. I don't have children myself, um, but I think some of the things that I imagine parents fear the most for their kids: uh, getting hit by a car, um, uh, getting assaulted by a stranger, um, are they are mitigated by living in a community where cars are marginalized and everyone knows you. Um, so, so it's a very safe place for children, and 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 it's um, it's something that um, I can imagine raising children in one day too. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the structural issues, but mm -hmm. I'm still kind of fascinated by the interpersonal issues. Sure. Have there been examples of people who um, get into co-housing and they think they're going to love it and? Six months in, they go, I'm so sick of these people, I can't stand it, I've got to leave. Do they have like contractual obligations that they have to stay or they have to find a, you know, a sub-lease, a sub-rent sub to somebody? Um, that's a really good question. I, I don't know uh, of any specific examples of that. Um, but I imagine that that kind of decision comes with the same consequences of breaking a contract in a regular apartment. Um or deciding, you know, moving into a house and deciding six months in that you don't want to live in that house anymore. Um, that's why it's so important that people that live in co-housing go through training and really get to know what they're investing in before they do it, because it's a it's a it's a decision that's hard to reverse, um, kind of like any other decision um, about when you decide to live somewhere. Um, you've done a lot of studies of the co-housing developments across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, are there any that you that in your mind stand out as particularly good examples? Well, my favorite is Eco Village at Ithaca. Um, I, only because I've, I've studied it and it was one of the earliest. Um, and it is, um, it, it has also managed to influence changes in the jurisdiction they're in as far as, um, as far as climate, uh, climate regulations and, and climate change, um, uh, legislation. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating community. It's, um, last I checked about 175 residents in, um, in about 100, a little over hundred units and they have divided their community into three neighborhoods. Um, so instead of one giant neighborhood, they have three kind of clustered communities. Um, and it's just, um, 
and, and it's also one of the studies that I was referring to before where some research has confirmed that their ecological footprint is 40% of the average American, um, which is very encouraging to hear. Um, there's lots of open space, and, um, and I think that uh, they've endured for a very long time and seem to be succeeding. Um, so that's, that's one of my favorite communities. There's lots. Um, uh, the, the Boulder region, uh, or the, the, the region kind of between Denver and Boulder and Colorado, there's, there's a lot of co-housing going on there right now. Um, because there are a couple of very um, uh, innovative developers that have partnered with grassroots uh, grassroots initiatives to actually make it happen. So I think that there's a really interesting transition happening in that region right now that has made co-housing a lot easier. Similarly, um, and, and unsurprisingly, the San Francisco Bay Area is kind of the, the origin for co-housing in the United States. Um, even though I should add, it was imported. Um, co-housing, um, the, the first co-housing communities were actually in Denmark and they were imported by a, a couple um, that came back to the United States and has written the book on co-housing. Um, so they, they get, should get a lot of credit for bringing it to the United States. Thank you very much. If listeners want to hear more or learn mm -hmm. more about co-housing, mm -hmm. is there a way that they can reach you? Sure. Um, they can reach me um, by email. My email address is rboyer one rboyer1 at unc.edu. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.